Amen. We could have our kiddos go downstairs. This hand's got some goodies for you there. Say, see you later, kids. Bye, Ann. You're not a kid. Building a, building a place for the Lord. If you wanted to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses uh, 4 through 17. God gives David a huge promise. This is a tough one for me because many theologians and teachers can do this one a whole lot better for me or than me. Uh, this is the Davidic covenant. And uh, you have the Abrahamic covenant, the Noah covenant, the Davidic covenant. These are huge covenants. And this covenant basically that God proclaims to David basically hinges on all of what Christian faith is all about. Um, This is our faith. This extends to the Gentiles and what we experience with Christ coming as the eternal king. Um, Let's read real quick here in 2 Samuel 7 verses 4 through 17. Actually, we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 7. After the king was settled in his palace, that's David, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build a house for me to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all of your enemies before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own, and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and I have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies." The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as it took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And then Nathan reported to David all the words of the entire revelation. And then King David went and sat before the Lord. And we'll end at that verse. But here we have a huge covenant. How many would like that kind of prophecy for yourself, right? David, your, your throne's going to extend forever. I'm going to give, I'm going to make you a name among all the men. Your kingdom is going to be established forever. But how many of you know kings fail and all the kings of Israel failed in some way, shape, or form? 
Solomon, the wisest man in the world, who built the temple of the Lord, he failed. He, he didn't follow. He started marrying other women and, and getting involved with other religions and started introducing other gods and idol worship. And so Solomon got in a whole lot of trouble, didn't he? So it wasn't Solomon who the answer was. What he was prophesying in that moment right there was the very Messiah, Jesus Christ, who was slain before the foundations of the world, giving us this covenant and extending David's kingdom. That's how when they reference Jesus, they reference Jesus as the son of David. It's pretty amazing. They reference the son of David. This very scripture is in the context of why they called him the son of David, that Messiah, that king. It's important for us to understand covenant today. I'm going to try to tie some things together for all of us to understand it. But I love what John Piper writes on the Davidic covenant and how important this covenant is for you and I today. The reason God's covenants with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David ought to increase the joy of our faith is that in all of them, the main point is that God exerts all of his omnipotence and uh, in his omniscience to do good to his people. And we are that people if we follow Christ in the obedience of faith. The most practical truths any Christian can know are that God is all-powerful, God is all-wise, and all for you. Nothing will have more important practical impact on the way you use your money, spend your leisure, pursue your vocation, rear children, deal with conflict, or handle anxiety. Heartfelt confidence that the sovereign God is working everything out for your good out of sheer grace affects every area of your life. Isn't that pretty neat? You think about this covenant that David had. I love that David said, and I'm kind of going to tie in an understanding of the covenant uh, of where we are at. David says, I want to build a house for God. That was good intentions, right, for him. I wanted to build a house. And I want to dive into kind of the understanding that and how God kind of snapped the communication back in place of understanding of who God is. Developing, number one, an understanding of God's covenant. John Piper goes on to write, when God makes a covenant... He reveals his own job description and signs it. In almost every case, he comes to the covenant partner, lays his job description out and says, this is how I will work for you with all of my heart and with all of my soul and with all of my strength. If you love me as I am, cleave to me and trust me to keep his word. Here's what a covenant is. You know, when Abraham had that covenant, could Abraham fulfill that promise on his end? Not at all. Abraham was a sinful man, right? Abraham, what is, happens with the Abrahamic covenant? God comes down and he makes this covenant. And because he realizes that he has to swear an oath to himself, because if he makes an oath to a sinful man, that sinful man can possibly break it and mess things up. How many have messed up before? This is the grace covenant. So God comes before Abraham puts him into a deep sleep, and he cuts covenant right through the fire there and swears an oath to himself. David, he comes to David. And David's walking around in the palace. He's defeated the Philistines. God gave him victory twice to defeat the Philistines. And now he's living in peace, which David really wasn't a man of peace. He was a man of many battles and many wars. In fact, the prophecy would be declared to David that the sword's going to be in your house, man. You're in trouble because of what went down. So David was a man of war, not of peace, but he's experiencing peace right now. All the opulence, all the things that he has in his, all the things that he has in his palace, walking around his robe, and he sees that man. I'm living in this beautiful home, and God is in a tent and a tabernacle out there. That shouldn't be. But I want to frame it this way: 
God sets it back in order. David thinks he's going to help God. Right? That's how we all are. I'm going to help God. I'm going to help God because I have lots of money and I can really fund this situation and I can really take care of it. I need, I can help God with this. Let me ask you, Bob, where did you get the money from? You're not doing God any favors. So David comes in and says, man, I've got this great home. I'm going to do something for the Lord. And, and Nathan, man of wisdom, he consults the prophet as David should. He says, I want to do this. And Nathan, not praying yet, says, do what's in your heart. Well, Nathan goes to sleep. And now God gives him an inspiration and a word saying, hold your horses. Every Sunday, turn turns to someone and say, hold your horses. This is what I want you to tell David. You're going to build me a house? I've lived in that tent all along. I didn't consult the leaders saying, hey, why are you guys living this way and I'm living this way? Folks, I don't know if you know where God lives. He lives in heaven. And guess what the earth is? It's his footstool. God doesn't need a home. Heaven's his home. And when we get to heaven... We're going to look at our beautiful marble floors, folks. I see some of the most amazing homes. Me and my dad get to walk through. My dad quotes all these homes, and we'll come back. And we're like, this is a good one. He'll say, Steve, this is a good one. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I want. That's my home right there. We, I, I told you we'll go on these bike rides on these beautiful homes on Calvin Park Boulevard, and you just drool, and you look at them, and all the kids, oh, I like this one, Dad. I'm like, that's my house, kids. That's mine. Let me tell you something. When God looks at all these homes on earth, he kind of laughs and chuckles. He said, that's a home? Really? <laughs> that's no home. You're going to build me a home, David? See, when, when Christ came to earth, everyone, the leaders, were looking for a king, right? When Christ came, he came as a lowly servant. He was off the map. Nobody knew it. I've told you this before. We all believe this, that, man, if we would have wrote the script, we would have had a big parade for Christ. The baby king, Jesus, is coming to take away the sins of the world. Let's bring him out on Main Street. We'll have the parade. We'll have the dancing clowns and the dancing bears. And this will be our king, Jesus. But he didn't come that way. You're going to build me a home, David? You're going to build a place for me? So often we think we're doing God a favor or we're helping him and we're building something for him that in effect we're helping him. Who was at the cross helping Christ as he hung there for the sins of mankind? Who was helping him? As I sat there writing this, I envisioned Christ dying on the cross and I couldn't hardly write. I was trembling as I was writing this thing. Who got spat upon when Christ was on the cross? Who experienced the same bruises Christ? Who was helping Christ in that moment? He was alone and naked before the whole world. Nobody helped him. In fact, Father God had to turn his back on Christ that moment. He said, God, God, why have you forsaken me? Because he had to turn his back on sin. He didn't just take on sin. Christ became sin. That's the covenant that we're talking about here. Our whole faith 
is based upon this Messiah Christ. And he said, David, your kingdom would go forever. Son of David. So when you see Son of David through the Gospels, you can reference all the way back to the Scripture where all of Israel, all the Jews were looking for this King that would come, this Messiah. Many times in our Christian faith, even in America, we've got better programmed churches. We've got better buildings. And yet the American church at large is very weak and anemic, aren't we? We're not strong. No, we got bigger buildings and we got cooler buildings. We got very efficiently run buildings and we got very efficiently run programs. But I dare challenge all of us, and I'm in this group, I've lumped it at all, but I very challenge our very own faith. Is it very weak and very shallow and eager? It's broad, but it doesn't have any roots. You're going to build me a house? Develop an understanding of this covenant for your life, and it's all grace. I heard a man describe simply the picture of a believer, and I love it. Norm Nelson had given this years ago. He said it's kind of like a little child in the kitchen helping mom cook. And he says, you know, the, the little kid really doesn't understand measurements and all that kind of stuff. Have you ever done all those kind of things with kids and you say, okay, you need a half a cup and it ends up being a cup and it overflows and it just all kind of gets all over the place. He says it's kind of like we're in the kitchen with the Lord and he hands us a spoon and a mixing bowl and says for us to help him. That's our posture with Christ when it comes to us, we need to become like children again and we understand that God is God and I am not. And he doesn't need my help. He's not worried about the world. He's not worried about the problems. He's not worried about the situation. We can come alongside him and partner him, but realize this today, that he is sovereign God and we are just servants before him. Larry Crabb wrote about a friend in a book and the pressure's off. And he talked about the, the view that he had in life. He said, I tend to view life as a prescriptive. I want to believe, I desperately want to believe that if I do things right, all will be well. Whether in parenting or work or marriage, whatever, I hope for a cause and effect relationship. I see it especially during the past year. And my worst nightmares, I never expected that, I, that what has happened would ever happen to my family. Anybody been there before? So many voices have told me to see my failure as a father, as a husband, as a Christian, to explain what happens by what I didn't do right. If I had done this, then that would have never happened. How many have been there before? I've come to realize that I made a deal with God. I've arrogantly come to Him, not to know Him, but to, to parade my efforts. God, I read this book. I followed the principles. I did family devotions. I told my kids I loved them. I went to their games, their school plays, and their recitals. And then I presented my checklist to God and said, I did all this, now produce. My fist was clenched in his face. I never saw it. I thought I was praying for blessings. By many measures, I've done really well. And that has created expectations. Great kids, beautiful grandkids, high school celebrations like everyone else. The list goes on. Reality rarely meets my expectations. I did a lot of things right, but my life isn't working very well. It's so confusing. All I know to do is to come to God, to plead with Him, to let me know Him better. God, I want to draw near to You. Whether You bless my life as I want it or not, I ask for only one thing. Please, God, draw me near to You. Folks, I want to challenge you today in all of our building, and all of our doing for God, 
and somehow we have made an arrangement that God's going to do this and bless that. And understanding covenant grace today, that's where we need to understand, is the grace that I can offer nothing to God. This isn't some kind of deal where I come to the covenant and say, okay, I'm this good person. And you'll see later on an understanding. When God spoke to David, he said, David, I brought you from a lowly shepherd boy out in the fields to become king. You didn't do this. David didn't defeat Goliath because he had tons of skill. He defeated Goliath because the Spirit of God went before him and slayed the giant on his behalf. That's grace. Folks, we cannot make life work. We must want God. We must want his presence in the very worst nightmare of situations in life. We can't work a deal with him. We must say to God, God, if this works out, it works out. If it doesn't, you are still God, you are still sovereign, and I want your presence in my life. The covenant can't work any other way. He says, David, I am building your house. You're not building my house. Let's get this straight. Let's get this straight, church. We're not building God's kingdom. God's kingdom, what we need to do is pray, God's kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're not doing God favors by being at church today. You know that, right? God's doing us a favor by showing up. He's laying the foundation that he's entered into your hearts and he's doing the building and he's doing the changes and he's doing the upgrades. God is not living in buildings. He's the divine creator of the universe. You say, well, where can I reference that? Acts chapter 7. Let's turn there real quick. Stephen is in the middle of... He's going to get stoned. How many know when you say some cutting-edge stuff, people don't like that? You're not very popular when you say some truth. Stephen wasn't going to bow to the leaders of the Sanhedrin. He basically presents the whole gospel from Genesis all the way to Christ. We're going to focus on seven, chapter 7, verses 48 and 49. Actually, in verse 46. Who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob? But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophets say. Heaven's my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? You stiff-nooked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Man. Stephen says, what are you going to do? Remember the scripture that talks about even Solomon's temple? He said, aren't the flowers of the field even more beautiful than Solomon's temple? I love beautiful churches. I love our church, don't you? I love it. I think it's beautiful. I think you should always have excellence. I, I, I think that you should put your best foot forward in all that you do. I don't want people driving and looking here thinking this looks like an old, decrepit, haunted house, Okay. It's amazing that, you know, soap goes a really long way for you. I challenge you today, maybe spruce up the place at your house. You'll have a better attitude about things if you just get the dirt off the ground. Just kind of clean up a little bit every once in a while. It's amazing. But, everyone say but. Just a house. 
That's all it is. Folks, we can't make life work. Covenants are not about making life work. See, the American gospel has taught us if I pray this, then I get this. If I do this, why me, Lord? Everybody said, anybody ever said that before? Why me? Why am I going through this? Why is this problem? God, I, I prayed about this. I gave that to you. See, we built our covenants on our own sense of strength, and our own sense of tender spirit, and our own sense of just ability. And yet, in all of it, we don't have any ability to even fulfill the covenant that God's placed before us. God's not living in buildings. The divine creator, you know where he chooses to live? He lives, chooses to live in the hearts of men. Think about that for a moment. All his omnipotence, all of his power, he chooses to dine with you. He chooses to make your heart his home. The creator of the universe. Holy Spirit fills the believer. And now all of heaven lives inside of us. Isn't that really amazing? Don't forget where it all began. 2 Samuel 7, 8. You don't have to turn there again. But it says, now say this to my servant David, Nathan. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you. From tending sheep in a pasture. And I selected you as king. David humbly assesses the situation. In fact, after David hears that, David wasn't going, Yeah, that's right, I'm the king, you're right. Picking me, you should have picked me. If you didn't pick me, you're wrong. He didn't do that. You know, the posture of the religious person, though, is this. These people over here deserve it. And these people over here don't. Guys, look at them and say, I don't think, no, I'm just kidding. But that's what the religious people do. We select the people that deserve it, and we select the people that don't. They did it with uh, Zacchaeus. Remember, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He goes up in the sycamore tree and to see what he could see. And Jesus turns around and he says, I'm going to your house. And all the people, you know what all the religious folks, these were Bible-toting folks. I should say Torah-toting folks. Turn there like, this man? This sinner? Having dinner with a sinner? Zacchaeus? See, guys, what we don't realize in the church is all of us would have had that same response. We all would have had the same judgment because religion has a weird way of creeping into you from a legalist standpoint of saying, somehow, I'm the one that deserves this. I'm the one. I have done these things. They haven't. God, why would you give grace to that person? Look at what they've done. Look at what they've done with their life. They don't deserve the same grace that I do. They don't have it together like me. But isn't that grace? That even when we were dead in trespasses and sin, I've said this before, but man, look at your life before Christ. Did you deserve it? Was there anything in your life where you were going, boy, I want Jesus to really change me. I really want Jesus. I'm this perfect saint. None of us are perfect saints in here. And yet Christ extends his grace. Don't forget where it all began. David humbly assesses himself. He says, who am I? And what is my family? He doesn't say, I'm your servant. He, said, or, he doesn't say, I'm your king. 
He says, I am your servant. And God, there is none like you, O sovereign Lord. You want to know what's pretty amazing about Christ? Why don't you turn real quick to Revelation chapter 22. Let's see what this covenant gives to us. Revelation 22, 16, verse 17. This is that Davidic covenant we're talking about. This is what allows us to have it because the Messiah Jesus has come. Revelation 22, 16 and 17 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you the testimony for the churches. I am the root, the offspring of who? The bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take a free gift of the water of Life. Isn't that fantastic? The offspring of David, Jesus, comes and he presents something to you and I for this covenant. And he says, come who are thirsty, come who are in our need, come and receive this free gift. David humbly assesses himself and he says, who am I and what is my family that you would do this for me? Don't forget where it all began in your life. Depend upon this covenant. If you call yourself a believer today in the house, and you've not become a student of God's word and his sovereignty, then I challenge you to humble yourself and bend to the word of God for your life. I say that, bend to God's word for your life. We live in a culture that is unbending now. We live in a culture that is proud and arrogant for the stance that the culture takes. And yet what the scripture does is it breaks you down. See, many times when we come to Scripture, we use the Word of God to prove a point for us, so that we continually be hard and we be callous. And that's how come the Pharisees couldn't even see beyond themselves. And Jesus said, when you look in the mirror, you're like someone who forgot even what they look like. I challenge you today, if you're... You're a believer in here, and you've not allowed the Word of God and to soak the inerrancy of Scripture to say, God, this is your perfect revelation. This is your covenant to me, and now I am bending myself to trust you. I want to be a servant to your Word. We believers don't look at the Word of God anymore like being to a servant to the Word of God. John tells us that in the beginning of the world, there was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. We have the Word of God, Christ. And so we come through and understand that the Word of God becomes the thing that we go after. David understood the word of God and the covenant for him. Let me tell you folks about Satan. You know, Rod had talked about speaking against, there is one powerful thing in this covenant you can do with Satan. And you speak the word of God to him, and the devil, the Bible declares, must flee. Satan is not pleased with men and women who gain access to the lamp and the light of truth. I love the story of William Tyndale. Now they won't tell you this in the history books, at your public schools, this might be cutting edge to some people. William Tyndale translated the Bible from the original Hebrew and Greek directly into English. Because his work was so violently opposed in England, the land of his birth, he fled to Germany and answering a priest who criticized his work, Tyndale said, if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that drives a plow to know more of scriptures than you do. Isn't that pretty amazing? Because in that time, the church in England didn't allow people to have scripture in their own hands. Only the priests 
were able to read scripture. They were the only ones. They were the authority, if you will. And so what happened was William Tyndale and many other people, they would come in there. And this one boy actually started reading the word of God. And as history counts, that little boy was put in prison and he was burned at the stake for reading the word of God in the church. In 1525, more than 15,000 copies were smuggled back into England over the next five years. Officials did their best to stop distribution. They delighted in burning Bibles whenever they discovered any. In May of 1535, Tyndale was finally captured and thrown into prison. Approximately one year later, he was burned at the stake. And why was he burned in the flames? Because he committed to the idea that average people should be able to read the Bible. And that was his crime. Before he died, he cried out with a loud prayer to Almighty God that everyone heard, Lord, open the eyes of of England's king. Little did he know how quickly that prayer would be answered. One year after Tyndale uttered his prayer to the Lord, a son was born to Henry VIII and his third wife, Jane Seymour. The baby was named Edward VI. No one suspected that this baby boy who would one day be king of England would be the answer to Tyndale's prayer. Should we go on to read? Henry VIII is a historical enigma. He did some terrible things, but he also did some good things. And one of those good things was to provide some godly tutors to his young son, Edward. Through the efforts of two Protestant tutors, young Edward was steeped in the word of God. Sir John uh, Chape served not only as a tutor, but as the father figure and friend of the young boy. Because of the unique relationship between the mentor and the young king, Edward flourished beyond his years. His maturity as a boy was shocking to the adults around him. He has remarkable presence and discernment. He also had a great love for Jesus Christ. Henry VIII died on January 28, 1547. And at the age of nine young years old, Edward began to be king of England. At his coronation, three swords were presented to him as symbols of three kingdoms he would rule. The nine-year-old boy, king, then called out, There is a sword that is wanting or missing. There was stilled hush as the officials looked at each other, not understanding what the young king was talking about. When they finally asked him what the sword was missing, the boy replied, The Bible. Then he addressed the adults surrounding him. This is a nine-year-old boy. Now listen to this speech. This book is the sword of the Spirit. And it's to be preferred before these three swords. Without that sword, we are nothing. We can do nothing and we have not the power. From the Bible, we are what we are to this day. From it, we receive whatever it is that we are present to do assume. Under the Bible, the word of God, we ought to live and to fight and to govern the people and to perform all affairs. From it alone, we obtain all power and virtue and grace and salvation and whatsoever we have of divine strength. Isn't that crazy? This is not your average nine-year-old boy. This was a boy wise beyond his years. And N.A. Waychuck wrote a history of Edward VI that is titled The British Josiah. Folks, I want to tell you today, during King Edward's reign, great reforms were initiated and moral corruption began to be checked. In the six short years of his reign, the nation had been revolutionized. The founders of the enlargement of true Christianity in England were laid and the encouragement given to the people to read and to mark and to learn and inwardly digest the word of God. Pretty amazing. You want a revolution today. I'm going to give you a revolutionary thought. 
Pick up one of the 20 Bibles that are in your house and read it. We are spoiled. Rotten. And we want God to bless us and we shake our fists at God and yet we will never take a chance and an opportunity to say, God, what is in your covenant that I need to know? What is it that I need to get aware of? Remember, flipping all the way back to grace. We all know what the do's and don'ts are. We know what they are. And we know the law of God and what it is. But folks, let me tell you what this covenant is all about. It's about God's power. It's about his sovereignty. It's about his grace for your life. That he will establish something in your life that you didn't think was established. He will bring you from being a shepherd boy to all the king of Israel. He will bring you from being a simple person in your life to maybe just like King Edward to declare there's one sword missing and it's the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Sandra, if you want to come up here and start playing. Folks, I dare say this to you today. When you become radical in your approach to Scripture, and when you see and take His Word and marry yourself to it, is when you will see change in your life. Your circumstances might not change. Let me predicate it on this. You still might be in the most silly of circumstances. You might have the next 15, 20 years of your life of struggle and situations You might have to face some things and some really big giants in your life. But the one thing that will change is that your heart will be married to God and you will run through the fire with Christ. I want to end with this scripture, Isaiah chapter 9. And I know we jumped around a lot, but this is a really good doctrinal time for us today. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. It's the scripture that we use at Christmas. But this is the scripture that asserts ourselves. And Isaiah gave the clearest reminder of the foreshadowing of who this Christ would be in the description. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 says this, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on whose throne? David's throne. And over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time and on forever, the zeal of the Lord, the Almighty, will accomplish this. This is Christ. And for us as Gentiles today, we're grafted into that same covenant of understanding that Jesus Christ the Messiah, the foretold one from all the way back from the beginning and all the way till now, Christ the King has come to our home today and saying, I am extending grace to you. I want to present a challenge to you today. One thing that I will say, just kind of admonishing people in here, last week was obviously a really, you know, crazy Sunday. Sophia had that uh, fainting thing, and I was watching how people were responding and people coming up and just coming to the, the, the call, so to speak, dealing with that, but I also saw some things happening just throughout the week with people. Just We have a really neat church, don't we? I was thinking this other week, it was neat because my wife, she can come to some of the girls' women's Bible studies, but some she can't, and it was neat because Jen had uh, texted her some of the notes from that week because she couldn't get to that, and I think about the hunger for God's Word and that those things are going on. I, I think of People haven't embarrassed people today, but it's good embarrassing. I, Margaret comes up to me afterwards when they were dealing with all the Sophie stuff, and she's like, 
we got to take communion. They didn't know they were helping them out there. And I said, communion's over. Sorry, you missed out. No. So she comes up here and she's like, would it be okay to take some communion home for me and Steve? And I'm like, this is such a blessing. People are longing for the Spirit of Christ to be touched by Him. I think about the little pockets and things and fires that are being built up in people's lives and hearing the testimony. Folks, this becomes revival to all of us and it spreads to others, meaning the dynamic of God's Spirit saying, God, I want to marry myself to your covenant. Your word is of value to me. This communion is not just some cute little thing we do, but I need it, God, so that I can call for remembrance symbolically of the cost that you paid on the cross. Why don't you close your eyes for a moment? I think of King Edward, nine years old, who changed the nation to really produce true Christianity. I think of him standing there with the three swords and the three kingdoms. He had all the natural resources before him. And King Edward declares this. He said, it's still not enough. Folks, I want to tell you today, no matter what swords you carry around in life, whether it be relational power or wealth or whatever it is, it's not enough. The first sword that you must have is the word of God for your life and make it something of importance to you and bend to it and allow it to change your life. And be like the King Edward in saying, we're missing, we're wanting. And I don't want to be a believer today that's found wanting. Today, Maybe the Holy Spirit's overcoming you and He's speaking to you. And maybe you've come to Christ, but you really haven't understood this covenant, what it's about. It's, it's really a one-sided contract. I want you to understand that. And here's what I mean by that. If you didn't fail today, you're going to fail miserably sometime, maybe this week. And if you didn't fail miserably next week, you might really trip up the following week. At some point, you're going to have to rely on grace. And today you say, you know what, I am reading this covenant contract and realizing that it's less about me and it's more about what Christ has. Today you said, man, I need that kind of grace for my life. And I want to be like little King Edward with the spirit of Josiah. And I want to make his word, that contract, once again relevant to my life. I don't just want to shake my fist at God and say, God, you fix these four things or else. I want to be someone that falls in love with God because Christ first loved me. And that he saw value in me and says, listen, I'm going to build you a house. And today Christ is going into each of our homes. And he's declaring, I stand at the door and I knock. And today... That is a verse and a call, not for the unbeliever, as it's been so suggested, but it's a call to believers. Believers, I don't want to be found wanting. I want the door wide open for Christ to come into my home. Let him build your home. You can't do anything for him today. But rest in that. It's not a slam. It's an understanding of the greatness of his sovereignty in our life. Today, if that's you, and you say, man, I'm opening that door. I'm a believer today, but I want that sword back in my life that's been missing, that's been wanting. It's not about reading the Bible cover to cover in a day. It's not about memorizing all the scripture you can in a day. It's not about a certain time or anything. It's just simply asserting yourself and saying, 
I want my house to be built not on sinking sand, but on the rock of Christ, the revelation of who he is through Scripture. And you choose to pick up this word and you eat it like the prophet declared. Today, if that's you, would you raise your hand? I want to pray with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I pray a spirit of King Edward over you today. Those of you who raised your hand, I declare that like Josiah, you awaken a revolution in your homes. And that your house today would be built upon the spirit of Christ. In Jesus' name. And why don't we all pray this together. Father God, I thank you for writing this contract up. For your all-knowing. For your all-powerful. For being there. And giving yourself to me. Thank you, God, that you're in this 100%. Even when I fail, and even when I mess up, you're there. And I allow you, God, to build my house. I allow you, God, to change me. So often, I've tried to change your mind. And I allow you, God, to now change mine. Thank you, God, for your word. The covenant you've given to me. Help me to learn. Help me to grow. Help me to be more like you, Jesus. Amen. Folks, it's good stuff, isn't it? The bigness of all this. What an amazing thing. I challenge you this week. You know what I have to do practically? And I'll just say this over and over again because we overthink this, this Bible stuff. Do you know what even Pastor Steve, I don't wake up in the morning going, I get to read the Word of God every day. You know, I don't do that all the time. But you know what I have to do as a practical habit? I literally had to take my Bible and put it where my habits are at. So if you want to change that and do something and start having the sword be the main thing, you know, you think of all those swords coming out saying, I'm missing something today. I know you've got all your meetings, and I know you've got all your important stuff. Isn't it funny what we call important to God? We've got all our stuff, but really what I would challenge you to do is put the Bible somewhere where it's going to make you trip over it. You're going to have to go around it. Uh, whether it's your kitchen table, whether your habit is to sit on a couch. My habit when I get up in the morning is to, is to sit right down there on the couch and I kind of wake up and I go, another day. <laughs> I got my coffee. Here we go. But it's a real opportunity for you to digest the Word of God and put that in that place where your habit is. And it becomes a part. It becomes a staple of who you are. And that way you just don't every once in a while just skip around and go, oh, I think I'm just going to read the Word today. It it becomes something you say, I need to read His Word. I need to get involved with His Word. Whatever it is. But make it a part of your daily habit. Make it something to where you go, I want to be like King Edward because I want this to change my life. I'm done preaching, I promise. I love you. Love you very much. And uh, let me pray real quick and then... uh, then we'll pass out papers. Lord, I thank you that as a family of God today, as a house of God, we get to enjoy the richness of your word. That the prophets and those didn't even get to see the full picture of what we're seeing right now. We get the privilege of seeing kind of the end and the beginning and everything in between with the cross reflecting all of these prophecies. 
And Jesus, I just pray that we would realize that in the simplicity of the moment, the cross, that's grace, is more than enough. It's more than enough not just to get us through the day, not just to accomplish tasks or goals, but for us to come to you because we thirst and we will find rest. Father, we all need rest. Rest from our worries and our doubts and our fears and a world gone mad. And we trust in you, King Jesus, that your throne is established forever. We give you this day, Father, and thank you for the covenant promises that you gave to us, even for us undeserving people. We love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful, wonderful Sunday. We'll, we'll get jamming on the flyers here momentarily, and I appreciate anyone who can help with that. God bless.